Good morning, church. Man, it is so good to see so many of you here. I know all of you are not here, but it's so good to see so many of you here. Thank you so much for persevering and for your patience as we have waded through how to have church in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Thank you for... um, Remaining unified in the gospel. We know that there are a myriad of opinions about how to handle a situation like this. And so thank you so much for trusting the elders in the decisions that we've made over the last several weeks and the decisions that we're continuing to make. I'm grateful for each and every one of y'all. And it is so good to actually put eyes on you and see you. And I do want to hug your neck. And there's going to be a time and a place for that. Just not yet this morning. Uh, but it is good to see you. Some of you look a little bit different. Chris, magnificent beard uh, in, in 11 weeks. You know, that's just, that's fantastic. Uh, I don't see the Jenkins here. I have to look over here. The Jenkins are here. They, we took the Jenkins pew out, so I'm not sure that I can trust those, those boys sitting over here to my right. I might have to keep an eye on them. Uh, but today is a day of uh, mixed emotions. It's a day of rejoicing, it's a day of lamenting, it's a day of mourning and weeping. I rejoice, we rejoice that this day is here, that we get to gather in this place that God has provided for us, we get to worship together like we just did praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by lifting our voices up to him in this place. We rejoice in that and we thank God for that. We are grateful to our core for him sustaining us throughout this time. But we also lament because we all are not, we are, we are not all here. There, there are many who are gathering and watching us right now in their homes like you have for the last 11 weeks. And they're still there. They're there because they need to be. They should be. And they're being careful. And they're heeding the instructions of the government that we've sought to take our cues from all along. And so continue to pray for them. You, you get the privilege of gathering with your faith family in this place this morning, but they're still at home. And they are just as much a part of us as we all are. And so let us continue to lift them up and pray for them as they are in their homes, uh, continuing to worship the Lord um, in those places. So it's a time of lamenting as well. But church, it is a time of weeping. It is a time of mourning. Just sang that song, Lord, I need you. Wanted Wanted to make it a we. Lord, we need you. We as a church need you. We as a country need you. We as a people, we need you. The images that we see from Minneapolis are heartbreaking. It is evil on display. It is murder. And we we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we look at what's happening in the streets of cities all over this country, and we see that there is a deep wound that only the gospel can heal. Not government, not policies, 
Only the gospel can heal a wound like that. I prayed and prayed over the last day or so whether or not to scrap this message as we've been in the book of Genesis walking verse by verse through this and do something different. But I, I, was, I was struck by the fact that what we need is this. Church, what, what we need is, is the truth that comes from this. The truth that's in here. And the overarching message of this book is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the hope that is bound up in that good news. That's what our land needs. That's what our country needs. That's what we need. And so we're going to pray for healing. We're going to lean on the Lord for hope in a time that seems hopeless. But we're going to dive into God's word because this is what we need. So we're going to continue our series in Genesis. So bear with me as we do so. So if you've got your Bibles, and I am grateful that you do, turn in them to Genesis chapter 29. This morning we're going to be in chapter 29 and 30. The backstory to the message, the, the narrative in this part of the book this morning is chapter 29. And, and we remember that, that God led Jacob from Canaan to Haran to find a wife. And when he gets to Haran, God leads him to the exact right moment at the exact right time. And, he, and he, he ends up meeting up with his uncle Laban and his family, which is his mother's family, his mother's homeland. And he tells Laban that he's there to find a wife. And he and Laban strike up a deal. And the, the deal is that he is to work for Laban for seven years. And then at the end of seven years, he'll be able to marry his younger daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob absolutely loves. And so Jacob works for seven years. At the end of seven years, Uncle Laban, tricky Uncle Laban, pulls a fast one on him and switches daughters. And at the very last moment, Jacob ends up marrying Leah, the older daughter, instead of Rachel, the one he intended to marry, the one that he was under agreement with Laban to marry. But Uncle Laban's like, don't worry, I've got a plan. If you agree to work for me another seven years, I'll also let you marry Rachel as well. And so Jacob agrees. So Laban, just it works out great for him. He gets 14 years of free labor out of Jacob, and he gets both of his daughters married off to him. And we held up the narrative in chapter 29, that crazy messed up story of what happened to Jacob. We held that up against the backdrop of what we saw in chapter 28, where Jacob has this dream as he's on the way from Canaan to Haran to find a wife. He stops over in a place called Bethel, and he has this dream where the Lord shows up to him, and he promises to Jacob that he will give him offspring, but not just any offspring. He says, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. your, Your offspring will spread abroad to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. And beyond that, he promises to Jacob that he will be with him. He promises Yahweh's presence to him, that that God would be with him wherever he goes. And so we look at that crazy story of what happens to Jacob in chapter 29 against the backdrop of that dream and those promises in chapter 28, and we wonder, where is God? Where is God in that? 
Is he asleep? Is he absent? Is he, is he decided to not keep his promises to Jacob? But remember, we finished chapter 29. We looked at those last five verses of chapter 29 where we see that God opens up Leah's womb and begin, begins to give her children, gives her four sons. And we saw that as, as a demonstration that, that, that God was not absent in this story. God was not asleep in that story. He wasn't ignoring him. He, he hadn't decided to, to abandon Jacob and abandon his promises. In fact, he was working out his promises all along. And those children were the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to bring him offspring that would be like the dust of the earth. And as we continue in our story, they do, in fact, become like the dust of the earth. And our takeaway from that was that God's plans cannot be thwarted by anything, including even human deception. But those last five verses of chapter 29 not only remind us that God was still at work in this crazy story, fulfilling his promises and and, and causing his plan to come about, but they also serve as an introduction into the narrative that we see played out in the first half of chapter 30, which is what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. While chapter 29 dealt primarily with Jacob's marriage to Rachel and Leah, chapter 30 is going to deal primarily with Jacob's children, or at least the birth of Jacob's children. Between verse 31 of chapter 29 and verse 24 of chapter 30, Jacob fathers 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter. And of course, we know this to be the beginning of the nation of Israel. Jacob's 12 sons, these 11, and then Benjamin, who comes later, form the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's great historical significance as the Israelites wander in the desert who are hearing Moses tell this story about Jacob's family. There is great historical significance here for them, and their interest is piqued as Moses begins to recount the story of Jacob's sons. And so follow along in your copy of God's Word from chapter 29, verse 31. We'll read through verse 24 of chapter 30. This is the Word of God. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said, then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may may give birth on my behalf. Then even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and, and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, "Is is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a great endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for gathering us here this morning. And we thank you, Father, that you don't leave us aimless and guideless. You've given us your spirit and you've given us your word. And so we thank you for both. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would give us understanding not only as to what this text means, but how we are to apply it. May we be encouraged and challenged by this narrative. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The bounds of this narrative are marked out by the Lord noticing each of the sisters and then opening their wombs. In verse uh, 31 of chapter 29, Moses writes, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And then it's Leah in verse 22 of chapter 30, where Moses writes, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So those are the two boundaries of this little story in the the text. And in between those two boundaries is this sordid mess of Rachel and Leah and their two servants and this passive Jacob who, as as the patriarch, seems to have absolutely no distinguishing, distinguishing morals here that would set him apart from any of the pagans of that land. And don't you just know that as the Israelites who are wandering the desert, wandering the wilderness after the... Uh, escape from slavery in Egypt, as they're hearing Moses tell this story, don't you just know 
that they cringe inside because this is their family. This is their family lineage. This is their heritage. This is their, their legacy. And it is messed up. And as followers of Christ today, we are children of Abraham by faith. And so like it or not, this is our family lineage as well. This is our heritage as well. This messed up family here. Whenever we encounter our heroes of the faith, our heroes in the Bible, um, and see their messed up lives like we do here, and see that they have feet of clay, we should be reminded of the implications of that for our life. We, we, should, we should be reminded of at least three things. Number one, it should remind us that our Bible is reliable. When, when, when we When we see stories like this, it should give us a greater confidence in the reliability of God's Word. Because if you are going to make up a story about the beginning of a religion, would you include this story? I wouldn't. I'd make up some kind of grand story about some heroes that did some great thing. Not some sordid mess like this with polygamy and surrogacy and all kinds of messed up things. And so the fact that it is here, nobody would make this up, points to the reliability of Scripture. This is God's inspired word. Nobody just came up with this stuff. Moses didn't didn't invent this stuff. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to pen these words as Scripture. But the second thing it should remind us of is that God is gracious. The only explanation for God to use messed up people like this is that God is gracious. Grace is the only explanation for God using sinners like this to fulfill his plan and his kingdom purposes. And so it should encourage us, church, because we're messed up too. We're sinners as well. And God desires to use us for his kingdom plans and purposes. The third thing it should remind us of, not only is God gracious, but he's sovereign. He is sovereign. The fact that God continues with his plan here, he doesn't scrap it and start over, but he continues with his redemptive plan to bring about a nation through whom he would one day bring his son who would die on a cross for the sins of mankind. It not only speaks to his grace, but also to his sovereignty. As we learned last week, Not even man's sin can thwart God's sovereign plan. So even though all the main characters in this chapter are sinning against God, God still brings about his perfect and sovereign plan of redemption. It doesn't skip a beat. So when we're sinned against, or when we sin ourselves, we can have confidence that God's hand of providence is still at work. He hasn't been taken by surprise. He's not thrown up his hands and wondering, what do I do now? His hand is still at work. God's hand of providence is working out his plan. Man is still responsible for those sins against God. But even they fall under the sovereign hand of providence 
God's plans will not be thwarted, even by our sins. It may not happen the way that we want it to. It may not happen according to our timetable. But we can know that whatever happens, according to Romans 28, happens for our good and God's glory, even when we're sinned against it. Those are some pretty good takeaways from a story like this, to be reminded that Scripture is reliable, that our God is gracious, that our God is sovereign. Those are good takeaways and legitimate takeaways. But there's something else that is embedded in this story of Jacob and his two wives and the concubines here that that I think is more to the main point of this passage. And as we begin to unpack it, we'll we'll, we'll arrive at our primary takeaway, our our main point of application, and, and that is that we must find our identity in Christ alone. We, we must look to God for our source of significance and value and hope and purpose and meaning and all of that. And when we look to things other than God for that, it is utterly futile and many times destructive. And that's what we see played out in this story here. The primary actors in this narrative are Rachel and Leah. Jacob is a primary character, but he's not a primary actor. He only speaks one time in this whole chapter, or at least the first half of the chapter. He only speaks one time in this story, and all he does is get his wives pregnant. So that's, that's it. That's all Jacob is doing here. So he doesn't play a lead role in this play. The primary actors are Rachel and Leah. And we see envy and strife and conflict between them. And the conflict began on their wedding night. We remember from verse 30 of chapter 29, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So right from the start, there is jealousy and envy and competition between the sisters. And it turns into um, what I'll call a baby war. I mean, that's, that's the best way to describe what happens here in this story. It's a baby war. It's, 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 a, it's an arms race for who can have the most kids, bear Jacob the most children. They're trying to outdo the other in how many children that they can have with Jacob. Now, we should mention here, as we did last week, that this is a classic example of polygamy. Well, perhaps not a classic example because polygamy doesn't always involve two sisters. That just makes it that much worse. But just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that God endorses it. The Bible nowhere, anywhere, endorses polygamy. In fact, Jesus, when he is commenting on the traditional marriage passage from Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to to his wife, as Jesus is commenting on that, he says, and the two will become one. The two, not the three, not the four, not the five, but the two will become one flesh, one man, one woman. Just as Paul says in Ephesians 5, one husband, one wife. The Bible never endorses polygamy. We just see it as one of the manifestations of man sinning against God and taking things into his own hands. But not only is polygamy against God's plan for marriage, Practically, it also is a disaster just waiting to happen. And that disaster is what we see played out in this story. So as a result of this, 
The sisters are bitter. They're hating one another. We're told in verse 31 of chapter 29 that Rachel hated Leah. And then God sees this. God sees that Rachel hates Leah, and he opens her womb. And parenthetically, we should take away from that that when we're being oppressed, when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're in that place, friend, know that God sees you. He may not deliver you in that moment because, again, he's working out his plan, but he sees you. He's there. He weeps with those who weep. He hurts with those who hurt. He sees you. Just as he sees Leah in her oppression. And he intervenes supernaturally in her life. And he opens her womb. But Rachel, he left barren. So thus begins the baby wars. Immediately, Leah has four sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And as we read through those five verses at the end of chapter 29, it seems as though Leah has at least a a God-focused perspective on childbearing. Or, or at least she is recognizing that it is God that is bringing her these children. The first son she names Reuben. Reuben means to see. And she says there, For the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Her second son she names Simeon, which means to hear. And she says, For the Lord has heard that I am hated. In other words, the Lord sees me, he hears me. And then the fourth son, Judah, Judah means God be praised. So at least she's remembering the Lord in her childbearing here. But we also see something else that she says that gives us an indication as to what's going on in her heart. We see something that she begins to mention as she names her children, that shows us what she's really looking for, what she's longing for. In naming her firstborn son, Reuben, she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. What is she looking for? She's looking for Jacob's love. She's longing for approval and acceptance from Jacob. She doesn't have it because Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, which, by the way, tells us that he loved Leah. He just didn't love Leah as much as he loved Rachel. He loved Rachel more, and that's that's not enough for Leah. She wants more. She's longing for that approval, that acceptance, that love from Jacob. And she's counting on having kids to win that approval. We see it again in, her, in, in naming her third son, Levi. Levi means attached. And so she says in verse 34, Now this time, as if it didn't happen before, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Why is she wanting children? Because she thinks that having her children and bearing children for Jacob will win Jacob's approval, will win Jacob's acceptance of her as a wife. For Leah, her idol is love and acceptance and approval. She's making decisions here in her life in this passage with a singular focus on one thing. Getting that approval, getting that acceptance, that love from Jacob. 
Now, in this part of the story, she's not actually doing anything wrong. We just see that driving motive in her heart there to do whatever she can, whatever she needs to, to earn Jacob's approval. That's her heart's desire. But this, this driving motive of her subsequently in this story does lead her to make some very unwise choices, as we'll see in just a moment. But we're, we've identified here an idol in Leah's heart. Acceptance, love, approval. And Leah believes that she's somehow less of a woman if she doesn't have it. And so she begins to do whatever she can to have more children than Rachel so that she will win Jacob's approval. What about Rachel? What's her driving motive? Again, for Leah, she had children. What she lacked was her husband's approval. Rachel was just the opposite. Rachel had her husband's approval. What she lacked was children. And so they were both restless in their soul for different reasons. Rachel's driving motive was to be a mom, to to, to have children. Her significance and identity and even worth as a human being was wrapped up in bearing children. And so everything that she did was in service of that goal. She starts out blaming her husband. Listen to the desperation in her voice in verse 1. She says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Do you hear the desperation? Not to mention it is an irrational accusation. You give me children, husband, or I shall die. She feels that her life is not worth living if she doesn't have children. So she's clearly not taking her cues from the Lord here. She's not determining her worth, her significance, based on what God says, but but based on what she wants. And what she wants is children more than anything else. And if she can't have them, she sees no point in going on. Church, our idol is often the thing that we want the most but can't have. And if we want it bad enough and then come to the conclusion that we'll never have it, then that leads to despair. And that's what we see in Rachel here, despair. So Jacob responds to her irrational accusation with something far short of kindness and grace. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, Jacob doesn't, he's not going to earn any gracious husband of the year award with that comment, but it's true. God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And so why blame me, Jacob says. But Rachel's not done. She tries a second desperate attempt to have children. The first attempt is to blame her husband as if that would somehow help her. But this time, she takes her cue from her grandmother-in-law, Sarah, whom you remember in the Genesis account earlier, gave her Egyptian servant, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham, in hopes of taking matters into into her own hands and providing a son for Abraham through her. And so, she does the same. The sin of the grandmother-in-law now is visited on Rachel as she 
takes her cues from her, and she gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob to be his wife, and excuse me, Bilhah uh, to be his wife. And lo and behold, it works. And Bilhah has two sons for Rachel, for Jacob, Dan and Naphtali. Now, we, we should see here that Rachel's search for identity in having children, her search for significance and identity as a human being apart from God leads her to make some sinful choices here, which is something that always happens when Christ alone is not enough for us. When we put anything before him, then not only is that sin in and of itself, but it leads us to make choices that lead us to further sin. And then Rachel's sin in giving her servant to Jacob then just paves the way for Leah to do the same. She sees that it works for her sister Rachel, and so she can't be outdone by her sister because what if she catches up to him and she's not able to earn Jacob's approval and love and acceptance, so she can't have that. And so knowing that she has ceased to bear children on her own, she just had the four, now she takes her servant Zilpah and gives her to Jacob to be his wife, and it works for her too. They, they have two more sons, Gad and Asher. So if you're keeping score at home, there are eight kids so far, four that are born to Leah, two that are born by way of Bilhah for Rachel, and two more to Leah by way of Zilpah. But we're not done yet. The baby wars continue. Rachel is still longing to have a child of her own. Yes, she had a couple through Bilhah, but she wants children of her own. She wants to have her own kids. And so nothing else has worked. And so now she resorts to superstition and magic and sorcery. She sees Reuben, one of the sons, the firstborn of uh, Leah. He's a young boy at this time. And he's bringing mandrakes in from the field. He had pulled some mandrakes up, and he's bringing those in. Now, mandrakes in that culture were considered aphrodisiacs. They were considered to be helpful in making one fertile. And and the person would superstitiously create a potion that would then become this kind of uh, remedy that would make them fertile. They were referred to as love apples for that very very reason. And Rachel sees these mandrakes and she thinks, I need those mandrakes. Those mandrakes need to be mine. Because I've got to have children, at least one. And so she wants those mandrakes to put together this potion that she's going to pull together in hopes that she would get pregnant. So she goes to Leah and she says, can I have some of those mandrakes? And obviously Leah is bitter about this. She says, first you steal my husband, now you want my son's mandrakes. But they strike a deal, and the deal is that Leah will get to have Jacob be with Jacob again and Rachel will get the mandrakes in order to make her little superstitious potion. But it obviously turns around on Rachel, this ill-advised and desperate attempt to turn to superstition leaves her empty-handed and in the mother of all ironies, it's Leah who has more children. Not just one, but three She bears three more children, two sons, Issachar and Zebulon, and one daughter, Dinah. 
And after she has Zebulon, notice what she says. Zebulon means honor. And look what she says in verse 20. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Again, the ruling desire of her life is to win her husband's love and approval. And so even to the end, she's pursuing that desperately. And then finally, the Lord opens up Rachel's womb in verses 22 through 24. Look at that. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. We should note that this is the first time that Rachel mentions the Lord's name. Leah's been mentioning the Lord's name all along, from the very beginning of this story in chapter 29. But not, Le- not Rachel first. God has had to lead her through some experiences in life first. She had to learn that whenever you place your significance and your meaning and your purpose and your value and your worth and your hope in anything other than the Lord, then those things will ultimately fail and often be destructive. And having learned those lessons, God now grants her a child and she has a son whom she names Joseph, who will then be the deliverer of Egypt as he leads them and saves them by the stories that come later in Genesis. So the baby wars come to an end at this point, at least for now in this story. Leah wanted children because she believed that children, having children, bearing children for Jacob would win his approval of her, would win her acceptance and love and approval because that was the thing that was most important to her. That was the ruling desire of her life. Rachel wanted children simply as a source of personal identity. She thought she was, a, she was incomplete as a human being made in God's image if she didn't have children. And she thought life wasn't worth living without them. I think we should read this story and step back and ask ourselves, is there anything that we want, that we desire in life, that we think we can't live without? Money, possessions, family, love, approval. Is there anything in your life that you want, that you desire so deeply that you feel you can't live without it? When those kinds of ruling desires begin to be what our lives revolve around, they begin to run our life and control our actions and decisions, then they become idols. Pastor Eric Geiger notes that there are four root idols that drive our behavior. I thought this was helpful. There's first of all the idol of power, a longing for influence and recognition. Secondly, there's the idol of control, which is a longing not just to have everything go according to plan, but to have everything go according to my plan. I want to be in control. That's an idol. There's the idol of comfort, 
a longing for ease and pleasure and leisure, for there just to be calm and lack of chaos. And then there is the idol of approval, a longing to be accepted or desired. Friend, what about you? Do you see any of these idols at play in your life? A longing for recognition, maybe in the workplace. A longing, desire for influence. A longing to have everything go according to your plan. Have these longings become ruling desires in your life? We see all of these at play in Rachel and Leah. Certainly there was a power struggle in the home as they conduct this baby war to see who can have the most kids. We see the idol of control in this situation. Leah trying to have more and more children, more than Rachel at least, so that she can control her husband's affections. Rachel, by, she tries to control the situation first by blaming her husband, then by giving her servant to Jacob, and then by resorting to superstition and sorcery, trying to control the situation. We also see the idol of comfort at play here. They both wanted the comfort of another. Leah wanted Jacob. Rachel wanted children. But they, they both were motivated by a selfish desire for this comfort. And then we vividly see the idol of approval on display in Leah's life as she had baby after baby after baby after baby trying to win Jacob's approval. But church, idols will always let us down. They will always let us down. What we see in Rachel and Leah's life here is sorrow and despair and desperation. And that's exactly what idols deliver on. They don't deliver on the things that we look to them for. Significance, hope, meaning, purpose, power, control, comfort, approval. They don't deliver on those things ultimately. What they deliver on is sorrow and despair, destruction and desperation. Only God can provide the things to which we often look to idols for. And when God is gracious enough to make us aware of that, that we have been looking to idols for those things for which we should have been looking to God for all along, then church, we need to repent of those idols. Eric Geiger goes on to say, we can repent of our longing for power by submitting to a power that's at work in us, the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God that's at work in us. And we submit to our longing for power by submitting to his power at work in us. We repent of our longing for control by surrendering to his ultimate control, his sovereign plan. We're not in control. And sometimes the Lord is gracious to lead us into situations where that is way too abundantly clear that we're not in control. We repent of our longing for comfort by remembering that he is the greater comfort and we repent of our longing for approval from man by rejoicing in his gracious approval of us. Church, his power is greater, his control is, 
is, is perfect. His comfort is complete and all-satisfying, and his approval is both unconditional and eternal. There is no God like our God. Only he can truly satisfy our deepest desires and needs. As C.S. Lewis famously said in his hallmark work, Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, only Christ in us can bring ultimate satisfaction and contentment and joy and delight and meaning and purpose and hope. Only Christ in us. And yet we still pursue idols. And we long for power and we long for control and we long for comfort and we long for approval and we search for meaning and significance and value and worth and we search for hope and purpose in places other than the Lord. John Calvin says the human heart is like a perpetual idol factory always churning out new gods. That's us. But here's the good news. Our gracious Father knows this. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, knowing this is true about us, sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we never could, achieving a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own, and then dying in our place on a cross to rescue us from the penalty of sin and the grip of sin, even the sin of idolatry, by faith in Christ alone. Church, are there some idols in your life that you need to repent of? We need to read a passage of scripture like this and look inward and ask ourselves that question. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Or is life incomplete, not worth living, and we are ultimately unsatisfied if we don't have something else? Is Christ enough? If, his, if he's not, then maybe there's an idol that you need to repent of. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now don't go all prosperity gospel and read that through the lens of the prosperity gospel and say, oh yeah, if I, just, if I worship God, he's going to be my sugar daddy and give me all that I need and want. What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? It means to make him the supreme object of your mind's attention and your heart's affections. It means to make him and your pursuit of knowing him and loving him and serving him the focus of your life, the the ruling desire of your life 
And if you so delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. But guess, because guess what the desires of your heart will be? Him. May we stop delighting in the trinkets of this world and delight in the Lord who made this world and who made you and I and by faith in Christ has remade us in Christ. To him, to him alone, be all honor and glory and praise. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture that does some heart work on us, Lord, does some heart work on me. And causes us to consider, what's the ruling desire of my life? God, I pray that you be with my brothers and sisters in this room and at home as they consider that thought. What is the ruling desire of my heart? What is the thing about around which I, my life revolves? What is the thing that if I don't have it, life isn't worth living. Lord, if that is not Christ, convict us of that sin of idolatry. Father, it is a grace on your part that reveals idols in our heart. And so we thank you for the work that you're doing now in my heart, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, as you're showing us what those idols are. Lord, we repent of that. We turn away from that. Our God, we know that you are more and you are enough. But we thank you so much that our right standing before you is not dependent ultimately on us successfully always fighting against those idols in our heart. But you and your divine wisdom and sovereign grace, knowing that we are idol factories, sent your son Jesus to rescue us. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of the unloved woman, who lived a perfect life in our place and then died in our place on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who are here and who are listening to this. Father, who are placing their hope for right standing before you on their ability to live right and get rid of idols and all of that. Lord, show them the folly of that pursuit and lead them to faith in Christ alone. Father, we who are yours by your grace, we ask that you would continue to do a work on us, sanctifying us, purifying us, making us holy as you are holy, as you rend our hearts of the idols that are within and cause us to worship and honor and praise you alone, for you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.